I'm your host, Tally Goff, Assistant Professor of Literary Theory and Cultural History at Cornell University. Born in London and based in New York City, my research negotiates what it means for me to be a Black woman from the United Kingdom and the haunted legacies of other Atlantic crossings. I explore these questions as a writer, curator, and a DJ, specializing in the narratives that emerge from histories of race, debt, and technology. My research is rooted in literatures and theories of labor that center Black feminist engagements with indigeneity and Asian diasporic racial formations. Much of my art and sign design practice explores what it means for me to be of Afro-Asian heritage, committed to forming intellectual communities beyond institutions. I am the founder of the Dark Laboratory, an engine for the study of race, technology, and ecology through digital storytelling, including virtual reality and DJing. And I'm Shannon Gleason, a sociologist and professor of labor relations, law, and history at the Cornell ILR School. I also co-direct the Migrations Initiative here at Cornell, and I'm an affiliate of the Latina and Latino Studies Program in Brooks School of Public Policy. My research sits at the intersection of labor and migration studies, draws on both qualitative and quantitative research methods, and is inherently comparative and transnational. My work is interested in how low-wage workers mobilize their rights, the importance of state actors in driving and sometimes mitigating the precarity, and the role that civil society organizations play in implementing policies and helping workers navigate regulatory bureaucracies. My current book focuses on the role of immigration status in driving workers' experiences and the specific ways that race and gender intersect with various forms of legal status. I'm the daughter of an Anglo father and a Mexican immigrant mother, and many of the themes that we discussed this summer were deeply personal to me. And we were privileged to be in conversation with 30 colleagues this summer who hail from a variety of disciplines, including art, architecture, Africology, design studies, geography, history, literatures, sociology, and many more. In this episode, participants from the Cornell Migration Summer Institute, Kristen Washington, Riva Fensalkar, Ryan Persadi, and Judy Salcido sat down with University of London Professor in Law and Anthropology and Associate Dean of the Birkbeck Law School, Eddie Bruce Jones. They discussed dreaming about the future of borders, the history of global indentureship, and South Asian diaspora politics. They represented the lands formerly known as South Asia, which also included Austin Kocher and Atif Khan. So welcome again, and thank you for taking the time out to speak to us. Um, we are all coming from different ranges of contextual knowledge and experience with the South Asian diaspora. And we know that you are an expert in, and let me let me do the roll call. You are an expert in race and colonialism, asylum, citizenship, and state violence, um, and specifically South Asia um, or South Asian diaspora. And so we are interested in knowing a little bit more about your work and your insight for us map making the future of South Asia. Um, so yeah, my first question to you would be um, for you to tell us a little bit more about who you are, what you do, and the place that you call home. 
Oh, it's a nice way to, to, to ask that. Um, so thanks for, for having me. I'm, so my name is Eddie Bruce Jones. I'm a, a reader, which is kind of an associate professor in law and anthropology at Birkbeck College at the University of London. And most of my work has been socio-legal, mostly looking at anti-racism work and how that engages with the law and the courts and looking at equality law, international law, and refugee law. <clears throat> and it's only in the last, well, it's, it's over the last 10 years that I've been doing research on the indentureship period, um, and in particular, South Asians that were indentured to work in the Caribbean. And I have to say, I have to, I think, mediate a little bit of my expertise, because I'm not really, I'm not an expert on South Asian um, history or politics. And the 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 route into looking at South Asia has been really through looking at how colonialism has shaped the indentureship period. So while I do have a general interest, and of course this familial connection to um, the subcontinent, I do have limited knowledge about things that I think people who are living there and grew up um, there would know just without thinking about it. So I, I do have to give that caveat. Um, but that's all to say that colonialism and particularly British colonialism, because I'm based in London, kind of the epicenter of uh, British um, ness or whatever, uh, very cynically say that, um, that has shaped a lot of my current thinking and my current research. So uh, yeah, and I'm happy to talk more about all that stuff. Yeah, I was also just wondering that because this will be a podcast within an institute that's asking us to ask a big question about the future of South Asia as a region and about identities that uh, descendants of indentureship identify with. Um, I was wondering if you could briefly describe the meaning of indenture to you and in general and how it's seen today. And uh, Tao also has been asking us to dream about the future and giving us this permission to dream. So how would the borders and meaning of South Asia uh, change by uh, 2350? And how would the region change from how we understand it today, in your opinion? Okay, so really big questions. and I'm glad you're asking them. And I think with any questions that are this big, uh, just taking a really specific take on them, for me, it will be important. So indentured, indentured labor has meant a lot of different things throughout history. And one thing that I think um, a scholar named Radhika Mongia does really well um, is to take apart the distinctions between, um, or to analyze the distinctions between indentured labor, um, debt bondage, and slavery, for example, and she's making it, you know, she's making it clear that this is not debt bondage per se, because the indentureship contracts that people signed when they left to work on plantations in the British colonies were technically um, contracts for compensated labor that were signed um, free willingly. Obviously, though, there are lots of complexities with that. First of all, people were told one thing and then went and then it was another thing. A lot of people didn't know where they were going. People couldn't read, so they were relying, well, a lot of people couldn't read 
and we're relying on um, an interpretation of the work. There was also a lot more um, intervention, government and, and state and private intervention into people's lives when they got to where they were going. So for example, in Jamaica, people were on plantations and they were working, but if you skipped the day of work or if you tried to leave the plantation, you were subject to criminal penalties, um, fines, and sometimes just brutalization from the um, plantation owners who were previously slave owners. Uh, so the plantations literally within a decade shifted gears from chattel slavery to this new thing called indentured labor, but it was exploitative labor. I mean, that's no question. Um, people were living in the barracks on the plantations, basically um, earning a subsistence wage, but they were obliged to do that for five years, and then they could decide whether they wanted to try to leave on their own dime or, or stay. But either way, even if it wasn't technically debt bondage, where they, they weren't in bondage, for practical purposes, it would be hard to maneuver around all of the legal um, snares that stood in people's way if they wanted to stop working in those five years. People's lives, ex life expectancies were cut quite short because of the grueling nature of the work. Um, so on one hand, there's the legal answer, it wasn't debt bondage. On the other hand, it is, there are continuities in these systems of exploitative labor between slavery and denture. And things like we see today, exploitative labor in our contemporary world. Um, and one of the things that ties those things together is uh, one could think of as racial capitalism. So uh, plantation systems, the way they work within colonial structures, um, people from Robin Kelly up through Chris Manjapra, who wrote a book called uh, Colonialism in Global Perspective just a couple of years ago write about racial capitalism as one of the staples of this plantation economy that's developed into an industrialized form of um, exploitation. So it's, you know, I think there, there are a lot of continuities there. Um, and so when I think then about the question of what does the world look like uh, in 20, what is it, 2350? Is that it? <laughs> like one answer is I am pessimistic about whether we can get things, all of these things on the right track. Um, I saw a meme the other day about someone who doesn't go on social media and a friend tried to explain to them any, everything that was going wrong in the world. And at the end of it just sounded ridiculous. It was like, how are we ever going to repair all these things at the same time? But if I were to think, in a blue skies way about what could change in order to get us into the right place. I would say borders, for example, hopefully will seem obsolete and quite draconian in 300 years because on some level, the form, the form of the state and how borders and territorialized, territorialized political entities called states, how they constrict the flow of people and capital and knowledge, even with things like we've seen with COVID-19 with these uh, with uh, intellectual property, um, or what we've seen with, um, you know, years ago with the Monsanto uh, issue that affected um, lots of uh, farmers in India because Monsanto is a 
corporation and held the, or was claiming to hold the intellectual property rights to uh, certain grains of rice. Um, and this whole concept of corporate ownership of uh, resources that are actually, that's actually counterproductive for sustainability. Um, I think capitalism and borders are two things that need to be rethought. So I'm, I'm not gonna just say, you know, down with capitalism and not continue on. There are a lot of structures that I think need to be rethought if we're going to have a fully democratic and cooperative global environment. Um, how we get there, I think is a question of strategy as well, because you know, the environment's crumbling down, uh, the, um, the way that we treat one another and the way that we employ law to entrench uh, global inequality, but then call upon law to legitimize what we're doing. So human rights is basically seen as something that can repair the, the situation for a lot of people, but at the same time, it's not really being used to benefit masses of people. It's being used in very, you know, in, in a select few ways. I'm being a little bit unclear, but um, refugee law is something that works for a very small percentage of the people in the world who are facing um, either persecution or, um, or conditions that are not gonna give them a full life. But then those types of laws, like humanitarian laws that affect very few people are seen as the most important things for the legitimacy of a state and its human rights program. So what I'm saying is that I think we're missing the forest through the trees by focusing on very particular types of law and the rhetoric around those laws, rather than looking at bigger structures like the formation of the state around these territorialized borders and, um, and how capital can be leveraged because it's privatized in order to do things that hurt masses and masses of people. So I don't know, I, I could talk forever, but I don't think I'll really give a solution. It's just that I think my vision for the world and how it would look in 300 years wouldn't involve borders and it wouldn't involve such a reliance on the benevolence of millionaires and billionaires. Um, to charitably like offer the scraps to the rest of the world. Would I just be able to um, offer like a follow-up question? Sorry, I know Kristen wanted to jump in there. Um, I just want to say, um, I, Eddie, it's nice to chat with you because I also work on indenture in the queer Indo-Caribbean context. And I was just thinking while you were talking um, about the relationship between borders and language that play out, it plays out in your work in terms, especially in terms of legality. Right, because I think a lot of our project with all of us from the different geographies we're situated in is we're trying to unpack and work with this very limiting confinement of what is South Asian and what are the sort of fragments that hold it and don't hold it together. Um, and so I think about even in my own work about how the language of the Kuli or Indo-Caribbean emerges out of the site of the departure from India and how that offers us frameworks to do sorts of work that take us to the specificities of the legacies of indenture, but then also are they're also identitarian languages. And so they can only take us so far. And so I'm also wondering in the context of your work in the UK where South Asian is a very political language that holds a lot of people in solidarity together, but also in conflict with each other, right? And, you know, I'm located in Toronto with a large Indo-Caribbean community um, and where this project is based out of New York. And so there's sort of all these transnational flows of 
you know, South Asian bodies, whatever that comes to mean, and the sort of conflicts that those legacies of identity and subjectivity and history bring to the table. Um, and so I'm wondering, even in our conversation around, um, you know, futurity or the future, whatever you want to talk about, is how the relationship between languages of identity, languages of history, languages of subjectivity play into our struggles with border thinking um, and place beyond the border and how that is kind of working out in, in some of your work. Mm. No, that's a really great observation. Thank you. Um, and I think that is, I mean, that's kind of it. It's, it's because I've been thinking, you know, in preparing for this conversation, what makes the South Asian, what makes South Asian um, nests or what makes a diaspora that we can call South Asian? Uh, and how do we think of the idea of community? How do we think of togetherness? in a context where we're also always talking about the historical contingencies on which that togetherness or that coalition happens. And I mean, one of the, one of the amazing things about South Asian, whether it's identity or this concept of South Asia is the, the incredible diversity paired against the hegemonic and and um, so linguistic hegemonies, the political and nationalist hegemonies, casteism, racism, all of the things that I think are, you know, are the challenges that other communities face, but also this, the specificity of it, I think you're right, is something that the, the communities of the diaspora can help to open up a conversation in. And I think indentureship, looking at indentureship and the legacy of how migration um, has created other forms of thinking and talking about being South Asian in places that aren't just London, because I think in London, there's, there's also this other hegemony that's built up around what it means to be a South Asian in, in the UK. And that kind of permeates throughout a lot of British literature and, and, and the English language kind of um, uh, studies in the English language. And I think one of the challenges is going to be securing a space somehow um, to discuss indentureship, but also to discuss those members of the diaspora that don't fit a certain mold or a certain trajectory of movement. Um, creating a space and a conversation in the subcontinent as well around what all this means and how how to kind of think about it and explore it. Because I think that, you know, that's one of the things that seems to be, um, there seems to be interest in, in, in kind of, you know, in the circles that we might be exposed to, but a broader conversation uh, could be really useful because I think that would give us different ways to, to respectfully also critique and, and self-evaluate how we think about um, how South Asians are situated in the global environment. Um, so me, as a person of South Asian descent and who I consider myself a part of the South Asian diaspora, I'm also very tentative about how I discuss it and talk about it um, because I've, you know, I'm generations removed. I don't, um, I don't feel comfortable sometimes weighing in as vocally as I'd like to about nationalism and, you know, Hindutva in, in India. Um, but I feel like there's such an opportunity for people of the diaspora to weigh in, especially considering um, having negotiated the histories of, of indentureship. Um, and just even looking at the, the, 
the ways in which some of those aspects have played out amongst people who are indentured of different backgrounds being in, in this new place and what kinds of discourses evolved around, um, around difference on the plantations is super, I think it's really exciting for me. It's formative for me, but to bring it into conversation with some of the other work that's going on, I think is, the, is a challenge that that is going to happen because people like, I mean, people like you, Ryan, or people like Rajiv Mohabir, or, um, you know, a bunch of other scholars who are working on these, these issues are bringing it to a broader audience, which I think is super important. So as you were mentioning, you know, looking to archives and stuff, we've also been thinking and having presenters talk to us about um, being rooted in traditional knowledge of your place um, and also looking to our ancestors as well um, to try to respond to what we would like to see in the future. Um, so for example, we were told by David Garcia, who's a map maker, that engaging with our ancestors allows us to walk backwards into the future. So how has the incorporation of your family into your research informed how you imagine and map the future of South Asian diaspora? Mm. That's a really lovely question. Um, I think futurity, even though I'm always thinking that this is the, the work will have a trajectory and be a part of a story that goes forward, um, the whole idea of future and past and present get completely jumbled when trying to do this work. And it's partly because, you know, um, the past is living all around us. And I feel like a lot of the type of work that I do. I'm trying to make it, I'm trying to do it in a way that's accountable to, you know, my grandparents and my grandparents' parents who I knew, you know, I knew my great grandpa, I knew my great grandmother. Um, and I'd want them to read it or, or kind of be able to hold it and resonate, have it resonate with them. So it's kind of like my audience is hundred year old people who have already died. And thinking of it that way, I don't feel like I'm necessarily doing work that is rooted in the present and the future. It's also rooted in the past in a way that makes the past a part of the, the present and the future. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but you prob you're probably also thinking about temporality when thinking about ancestry anyway. And... Um, and it's not only to go back and correct the past. It's about trying to make sense of oneself now. Um, and part of why that's so prescient, like I mentioned, um, for, for the communities that, that I feel like I'm a part of is because the archives don't do the work for us. And we have to engage with it in order to, to kind of tell the stories that we think deserve to be told. Um, because I think like Hartman said in that essay, um, Venus in Two Acts, otherwise this, the girl that she's writing about would remain kind of a marginal comment or some expletive that's kind of left to the side to, to languish and not actually have humanity. And so that's part of, part of what, um, what I think it means to be accountable to, to the ancestors when, when writing these, um, this work. But I also think it's, it's knowledge that you take from, from 
all of those around you, not just those who have come before, but those who are writing alongside you in different contexts. And it's building on these experiences in such a way that makes it a part of the larger conversation. Because it's, it's one thing to kind of write one's own kind of familial history and have these stories, but it's another thing to be able to link them up and have conversations across, you know, your own generation or whatever about um, how these stories compare and contrast and, and what else we can bring out of the stories, given that someone else has done work that's kind of um, run in parallel. So I learned so much from my cousin. I have a cousin who's very into um, looking at the plantation where our ancestors were working. And we discovered new things from us all from, from one another all the time, just because of what types of um, questions we both have. They're just different types of questions and what our, our, our respective families tell us. So, I mean, I think, I just think it, it's hard to imagine doing this work without integrating very centrally the, both the experiences of ancestors, but also um, this idea that we're accountable to, to write about them in a way that is as close to uh, an, an intimate sort of truth as possible, even when that means being uncomfortable with the stories that we're telling. Thanks for listening to The World We Became, MapQuest 2350, a culmination of an experiment on the study of race and migration using speculative design and digital methods. We'd like to thank all of our participants from the 2021 Cartographies of Racial Justice Summer Institute at the Migrations Initiative of Cornell University with support from the Office of the Vice Provost of International Affairs, the Mario Ainaudi Center for International Studies, and the Mellon Foundation's Just Futures Initiative. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us at Global Cornell and hashtag Cornell Migrations. Original music was created by Jesse Scambari and David Gonzalez produced each episode. Much of the podcast is produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the Cayuga Nation's sovereignty and indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land.